Sutras of Patanjali, to the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. In our last discourse, we have reached at the, the last comment from the final chapter, from the chapter number four. And uh, I signal there that Patanjali is somehow making an inconsistency because the sutras number 9 and 10, and especially the sutra number 10, is a bit of a sutra that is tantric in character, because while in the normal classic yoga, and as well as in the Vedantic tradition, the manifestation, called either Prakriti or Maya, is considered to be transient, false, in a certain manner, here, Patanjali was actually commenting on the nature of the mind and samskaras and the others. He reached into a dead end where he was forced, logically, to admit that some of the elements of manifestation are eternal, and giving them the epithet of eternal, he actually showed them to be of the nature of the Supreme Consciousness. But that is just a small hiccup in the whole uh, presentation because Patanjali is not really going there. It is not his purpose to make an analysis of the tantric or non-tantric nature of manifestation. He is here in the middle of a fine analysis of the mind, how the mind connects with reality. And his purpose is sooner or later in this chapter, as you are going to see, to take us to the over mind to what Aurobindo has called the supramental and therefore to take us to the nature of pure spirit or as classical yoga calls it Purusha. That's why we continue with his analysis. There are still a few sutras in which Patanjali evolves and evolves. He continues this argumentation. He started from uh, simple things and he continues this argumentation trying to understand the nature of mind and reality comparatively. The sutra number 11, the first that we analyze tonight, according to a possible translation, the, the sutras which follow now, uh, a few of them are quite slippery, quite difficult to translate. They have these multiple meaning words and thus they can be translated in several ways. But the sutra number 11, says something as, like as follows. Since cause and effect, support and object are bound together, by their disappearance, they also disappear. And they also means the samskaras from the previous uh, sutras. I will read it again with some clarifications. Since cause and effect support and object are bound together, cause and effect. There is no effect without cause. There is not any cause which does not produce sooner or later an effect. Uh, in the light of the previous sutras and what Patanjali has commented, cause actually means what is the cause. The cause are the mental impurities, the kleshas, the samskaras. So these are the causes and the effect is life itself. The effect is the experience of pleasure and pain. So some samskaras, some kleshas make us experience pain, some kleshas make us experience pleasure, and all in all, all of them are nothing else but the experience of life. Therefore, life is the effect of the kleshas, and this we have been told already, that the samskaras, the residues in the mind, are the ones which produce life itself the existential conditions. This was commented already in the previous sutras. And he says, since cause and effect, support and object. So he also uses an analog analogous terms. Instead of cause and effect, support and object. The causes are the support and the object itself is life, is the effect. Since cause and effect, support and object, are bound together, that's logical, yes, it has been demonstrated in repeated manners in the Yoga Sutra, 
that cause produces effect, that the kleshas are the ones which cause the experience of life, of pleasure and pain, and all the other implications that you may wish to have. Since cause and effect support an object, are bound together, by their disappearance, they also, the samskaras also disappear. So therefore, if one would make the cause and effect disappear, then automatically the cause disappearing would entail the disappearance of the effect. The disappearance of the effect would entail the disappearance of causes. So basically he says if you make the samskaras, the kleshas disappear, you can make the experience of pleasure and pain disappear. And contrary, which is of course a less practical way, if you would refrain from the experience of life, from the experience of pleasure and pain, then that would lead or it would be related in a retroactive way with the disappearance of the uh, samskaras, with the disappearance of the kleshas. Basically, this tells us something about the radical solution proposed, suggested by Patanjali, to destroy the whole thing, to destroy the vasanas, to destroy the samskaras, to destroy the kleshas, the impurities of the mind, in order to destroy the experience of pleasure and pain. Of course, nobody uh, at an egoistic level has anything against pleasure, but pleasure and pain are just two facets of the same coin, so basically uh, the statement remains philosophically. From a philosophical standpoint, both are true. And this being said, this sutra was straightforward, clear, and we go to the second to see how, to the next one, to see how Patanjali continues his brilliant argument. He suddenly connects his, connects his with two older friends, which were commented in the last sutras of the chapter 3 and other where, uh, in other places in throughout Yoga Sutra. He simply says something like follows. Past and future exist in their own form by difference of the paths of the characteristics uh, or otherwise said the substance. It's a very odd poetic uh, formulation. Other authors try a slightly different translation, but always the meaning is the same. Let's look again at this longer sutra. Past and future exist in their own form, so he basically, I don't know if you realize, he jumps from cause and effect to past and future. This is not a coincidence. He connects, therefore, cause and effect with past and future. And uh, therefore, these are like two poles, which both of them have to disappear. And he obviously here refers to the midpoint, because in the previous sutra he said, uh, by annihilating one you make the other disappear by their disappearance the others also disappear and therefore he obviously preaches the disappearance of cause and effect to make the effect disappear the disappearance of effect together with cause and now he compares them with past and future he says exactly as we have cause and effect a typical correspondence a typical correlation in this holographic universe is the past and the future. And as we know from other sutras, he insisted that past and future are illusory, are just a polarity, and the only thing which exists is the present moment. He kept on telling us that past and future are of the nature of the mind, while the present moment, the gap between the past and the future, is of the nature of pure consciousness, mindfulness or awareness and therefore here he unites these two ideas he told us that cause and effect can mutually annihilate each other and he continues with this analogy by saying past and future exist in their own form like each one of them is a manifested form therefore he tells us past and future exist as aspects of the mind actually uh, as aspects of prakriti and by difference of the path of the characteristics, or otherwise said, the substance. So therefore, the substance, the manifestation, is coming through various modifications of the past and of the future, but he calls our attention implicitly by not saying it, by leaving a gap, 
he calls our attention to the third aspect, which is between the past and the future, and which is, of course, the present moment. So, basically, he tells us through the, he says, by difference of the paths of characteristics. That simply says how they evolve, how they manifest, how they uh, Change. These are simply different further modifications. The past and the future are like radical words, the roots of the things, and then by exactly like a seed that sprouts and becomes a tree, exactly in the same way the past and the future, by path of the characteristics, they basically mean the substance, prakriti. Prakriti evolves from different aspects of past and future. This is a theory which is espoused a lot in Tantric Yoga, which all the time gives the characteristics of past and future and the characteristics of duality to the mind, while the characteristic of middle is given to the consciousness. In Tantric Yoga, because here I'm trying to give a Tantric Yoga commentary to the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, in the yoga of energy, therefore, any polarity is related with cause and effect, past and future, in a similar, by, a, by an analogous comparison, by a holographic comparison, by the principle of correspondence, which says, as above, so below. Things correspond to each other. Those of you who have studied the laws of the mind in this school, in the courses of this school, Remember that in the laws of the mind, we have the same thing. Ida and Pingala correspond to the conscious mind and therefore to the activity, I'm sorry, to the activity of the subconscious, which represents the different layers of the mind. But the middle, the Sushumna Nadi, the zero, corresponds to the conscious mind and therefore it corresponds to this present moment. Always, always we have this duality, that there is an aspect which is plus, that there is an aspect which is minus, those correspond to the evolution of things, and then there is the middle which is pure consciousness. This is something which is very, very important, for example, in Svara Yoga. In Svara Yoga, which is a rather secret, cryptical form of yoga that you get to study in the advanced phases of the curriculum of this school, in the Svara Yoga there exists the same statement. The lunar Svara and the solar Svara, breathing through the left nostril, breathing to the right nostril, attuning to the lunar and solar energies of this universe, you can do some things, you are supported in some things, and they are all of them pertaining to what Patanjali calls here the substance, prakriti, nature, the manifested universe, and then there exists the famous shunya svara, when you are neither going to the left nor to the right, the middle breath which goes through Sushumna Nadi through the central channel, which corresponds basically with the central rising of Kundalini, with the spiritual rising of Kundalini, and that one is bringing transcendence, that one is actually taking you out of manifestation. The Shunya, the Svara Yoga, for example, claims that if you go in Shunya Svara for more than three days in a row, you will simply leave your body, you will simply die, uh, not in the meaning of accidental or death by disease, but in the meaning of simply transcending existence. And that is why this polarity is in a very delicate way, in a very subtle way, brought forth again by Patanjali, this time relating it with past and future, and thus talking to us about the power of the moment. I remind that in the end of the third chapter of Yoga Sutra, Patanjali gave us one of the most spiritual samyamas that he could conceive of, and that samyama was precisely on meditating neither on the past and on the future, but on the present moment, and then on the relationship between the present moment and the past and the future, the evolution of the present moment, how do different present moments, so to speak, how are they related to each other, how does succession of time moments produces the universe. There is no space here, you will have to re return to that sutra 
and read again the commentary, listen to the commentary there. But basically here Patanjali brings that factor and mixes it with the things of the mind. He just spoke about mind, samskaras, the cause and effect at the level of the mind and all the things. And now he tells us something about the past and the future relating to them. He is not just mixing up subjects or signaling every single analogy which comes to his mind. He has a plan, as you realize. He takes us through various arguments because he finally wants to reach to a radical argument in showing us something about the nature of mind, nature, as well as spiritual reality, transcendent reality. That's why I will not comment further. There is nothing more to say. This is just a landmark. It's just a step in the argumentation by Patanjali. And I'm moving to the sutra number 13 where he continues. Whether obviously manifest or subtle, they, this, this substance and the characteristics of it, past and future cause and effect, whether obviously manifest or subtle, they, these characteristics, these dualities, are of the nature of the gunas. Here he is immediately showing to us that there is a midpoint, because while all the dualities which he showed to us until now, cause and effect, past and future, are two, the gunas, which you study and most of you have studied in the curriculum of the school, the gunas are not included in our first month yoga program because they are a more subtle philosophical nature and they are not urgent and necessary for people's practice in the first month, but they are included in our second month curriculum. There you have a full lecture, a lecture in which the gunas are mentioned and papers uh, detailing that. And as I'm saying, uh, the gunas are in number of three, and the gunas are always made of a passive guna, an active guna, and then the third guna is a mysterious balancing of the previous ones. And this is very important because suddenly Patanjali says, those two things are of the nature of the gunas. Well, you mean those three things, because the gunas are three, not two. And this shows automatically that Patanjali all the time uh, was talking obliquely, was talking allusively, because he actually meant three things, not two. He meant cause and effect, and something which is between the cause and effect, the cancelling, the balancing, the zero. He spoke about past and future, and he actually referred indirectly to the present moment, which is between them, and between any two polarities, there is always the zero. There is the minus or ida nadi and the plus or pingala nadi. And between them there is the zero, the shunya, the sushumna nadi, the middle aspect. And in the same way, uh, now Patanjali has broken it open and he has told us uh, an interesting thing. Patanjali says, if you have past and future, if you have cause and effect, they are of the nature of tamas and rajas the two opposites, tamas, which is rather passive, and rajas, which is rather active, tamas, which very much sounds like yin, and rajas, which very much sounds like yang, if you would want to push it to make a correspondence between those. And then Patanjali tells us there is sattva, and sattva is of the nature of balance between the two, and therefore sattva would represent the midpoint. Now, in the theory of the tattvas, the third tattva is not really, I'm sorry, of the gunas. Uh, in the theory of the gunas, the third guna is not really a balance of the two. It's a third entity completely different. Therefore, you cannot say that uh, purusha, the, the present moment, is half present, I'm sorry, is half past and half future. We have the past. We have the future, and then the third thing is separate, is qualitatively different from the other two. It's not just 50% past and 50% future, and thus you got the present. The spiritual nature is like different qualitatively from the others. Now, I would have to say that here Patanjali uses a slippery comparison because he himself 
distinguished in the very beginning of this chapter, he distinguished between sattva and purusha. And thus he told us sattva is still one guna of manifestation and those three gunas, rajas, tamas, sattva, or in their traditional order better, tamas, rajas, sattva are just things which pertain to prakriti and purusha, the spiritual nature, is something completely different. And even if you are sattvic, you haven't reached purusha. And here Patanjali was following in the footsteps of Krishna who was saying exactly the same thing in Bhagavad Gita, that even sattva is not good enough. But Patanjali here in this sutra makes a slippery comparison because he wants to say that we are having a transcendent aspect and he says it is as it is with the gunas. He says this is, these things are like the gunas. This comparison is slippery because it would make you understand that sattva, however, is like the present moment and therefore it is of the nature of something transcendent and not like of the mind. Therefore, here we are having a mysterious truth uh, outlined by Patanjali because in one way Patanjali tells us, well, Sattva is the way of transcending the plus and the minus, the tamas and the rajas, the past and the future, the cause and the effect, and it is considered the guna which is ascending, which is elevating the life and the quality of the consciousness of the existence of the human being. But then in another sutra he told us, pay attention, because that is just a comparison and it is an analogy, it's a holographic analogy, and you cannot mix up that sattva is purusha, is the transcendent self, it's the spirit. We can say that sattva is like analogous to it, and it is going up and it represents a great spiritual refinement, but still purusha is something different. And uh, therefore, uh, this is also a step in his argumentation. So he says, whether obviously manifest or subtle, that sends us to some other sutras from before uh, with obviously manifest or subtle, because if you remember, he told us that different things in nature can be manifest, subtle, or very subtle, and uh, those were representing things which were physical, astral, Causal. So here he tells us whether obviously manifest or subtle, uh, which in which he says either these things are physical, astral, causal, it doesn't matter, cause and effect, uh, past and future. He says it's the same about the astral world. If we talk about past, in the past and present and future, past and future in the astral world and others, still it's the same. So this rabbit hole is, of course, deeper. He is having a very elaborate mind, Patanjali, and therefore he wants to cover all the possibilities, and that's why his sutras are using words which send us really to some depths. And he says, whether obviously manifest or subtle, that's a reference to that thought, they, these dualities, are of the nature of the gunas, so actually they are triadic, not dual, there is this third point which is the whole point, which is exactly what was concerned there. And he, in the sutra number 14, he goes saying the reality of the object is due to the oneness of the transformation of these gunas. Here it is a collateral statement, he will not stop upon this, too much because he goes on using some of this but he will not stop of it. That's why my commentary will also be short. He says the reality of the object is due to the oneness of the transformation of the gunas. If you remember, those of you who attended these uh, commentaries in the past, he keeps on speaking about oneness of things, unicity of things. In the chapter number 3 says that if you get the divine knowledge, even two things which are not different by class, 
birth, uh, location, and whatever else, they can be identified. Like even two atoms are different in the eyes of God, and the divine consciousness sees unicity, that everything, every human being, everything is unique. Everything is, having, is carrying a signature of uniqueness, and in spite of apparent similarities or resemblances. And then he is telling to us in the chapter number four, in this very chapter earlier, he talks again about this unicity and he speaks about the differentiation. He says, in spite of the fact that the spirit is one, we are having a differentiation. There is multiplicity in oneness. So now he uses the same idea. It's exactly like Patanjali sets a certain slang. He has a slang of his own and subjects which are relevant. He brings them again and he says, if you remember, as I said in a previous sutra, I used these words before and here I'm coming with them. And in this way, this is a very holographic text because one sutra relates to other sutras and there is a cross-fertilization of ideas between those sutras. However, here it's more simple in this particular one because he doesn't follow this implication. He is not interested to dwell in this some more and that's why he just mentions it passingly. And that's why he says the reality of the object is due to the oneness of the transformations of the gunas. Here he simply wants to say every object is having its unicity, every object is having its signature. It is because of the evolution of the gunas uh, samskaras, cause and effect, past and future, all those things. And it's an evolution, as he said earlier, when he, says, when he spoke about, about the path of the characteristics. He, said, he says, by difference of the path of the characteristics, things develop, as I gave that analogy, like a seed that sprouts and becomes a tree. Causes and effects keep evolving, and thus we generate the myriad of objects of the diversified world in which we live, in which we live our lives. And that is why he simply wanted to tell us that the objects are unique, because he wants to signal to us the relationship between object, mind, and later spirit. Remember, Patanjali is building up something through these sutras, and while he is telling some very interesting things, his point has not yet been reached. He is still building up some statement here. So he told us the reality of the object is due to the oneness of the transformation of the gunas and that was the sutra number 14. We continue with the sutra number 15 where he keeps on and he says because of the sameness of object and difference of minds their paths are separate. Basically, he tells us here that mind and objects are separate and there is a very important point for which he does this because this is, by this he refutes some theories especially existing in idealistic Buddhism, for example. Here, Patanjali says, because of sameness of object and difference of minds, these things are separate, which simply says, there is sameness of object, here is the same object, and difference of minds. Two people look at the same object, and their mind tells them two different things. The experience, the samskaras, the vasanas, the experience of pleasure and pain, even. So even the, not only the cause, but the effect, they are different, and they are different, and this shows that, wait a second, the object is the same, the minds are different. Therefore, it means that, he says it in a funny way here, he says, therefore, their paths are separate. You cannot mix up the mind with the objects. While, for example, in idealistic Buddhism, that is a branch of psychology, psychology it's Abhidharma and other forms of Buddhist psychological studies, there have been idealistic Buddhist philosophers like Nagarjuna and a few others from his school who came up to build a very, very, very elaborate psychology according to Buddhist tenets. And it is not from the writings of the Buddha himself, 
Therefore, this is quite speculative and it doesn't find its way in the regular Buddhism. It's not of uh, regular importance, import in Buddhism, in, in classic Buddhism, in, in normal Buddhism. And in this uh, particular theory, then they would say that the mind and the objects are one. And this is the beautiful, delicious thing, is that both are right. We cannot say that Nagarjuna, who was an enlightened Mahasiddha, was wrong. But Nagarjuna looks upon these things in a certain way, and when Nagarjuna in idealistic Buddhism says the mind and the objects are the same, he basically says they belong to Prakriti, both of them. The objects are made of tattvas, of the five tattvas, and the minds, the mind is the level number six. So we have the five tattvas, the mind is the sixth sense, the sixth tattva, and therefore mind, five tattvas, aren't they the same? They are just part of Prakriti. While here Patanjali says qualitatively, they are different. The objects are one thing, and the mind is another reality. The truth is that Tantric Yoga through the understanding of the chakras, has the same opinion as Patanjali. And while Nagarjuna is right in his own way, Patanjali is also right. This is the delicious thing, that both are right, although they say quite opposite things. And this shows the nature of reality, that in this reality, some things are simultaneously true both, uh, both ways. Both one thing and its denial are both true at a higher metaphysical level, which basically says that extremes touch each other. Nothing is everything. The void is everything. Everything is the void. And I have nothing, therefore I have everything. Complete detachment is complete divine consciousness. And the examples could continue ad infinitum, almost in this way. And here you see that while Patanjali is refuting idealistic Buddhism, idealistic Buddhism is good in, I mean, it's true in its own way, only that is not of any use to Patanjali for his subject here. And that's why Patanjali takes it in another way. In the way of the chakras, in the way of the tantric yoga, Patanjali is right as well, because Objects mean the five chakras. The first five chakras are the first five tattvas, and in this universe everything is built out of the five elements. Your body, your astral body, your whatever, is built out of the five elements. Everything is built out of earth, water, fire, air, and ether. You don't need anything more than the five elements to describe any existent thing in this universe from a galaxy to an atom and from, again, an astral body to a physical body or something like that. On top of the first five chakras, which define the five elements, we are having Agnya Chakra. And Agnya Chakra, the third eye, is defining the mind and it is like the sixth element and it is like the sixth sense and Agnya Chakra defines a reality which is synthetic. All the five elements are contained, are synthesized in the mind. Ajna Chakra can control all the five inferior chakras as shown in yoga. It's enough for you to read the description of Agnya Chakra in Shiva Samhita. And Shiva Samhita says whatever you did with the five previous chakras, you can also do alone with Ajna Chakra. So Ajna Chakra, the third eye, is a way of controlling all the others. And that's why some people may legitimately ask, why in yoga do you need to work on the first five chakras at all if Ajna Chakra alone can control and covers all those? That would be the opinion, of course, of the Raja Yogis. Let's just look in Ajna Chakra and forget about the other five below because Ajna Chakra synthesizes and controls them, sums them up and controls them anyhow. In the Tantric tradition, this is brilliantly illustrated by the fact that the yin and the yang aspects of Agnya Chakra, each one of them are characterized by 48 spokes or petals of the lotus. And actually, why 48? Because the total sum of all the spokes of the other five chakras is 48. 
four spokes in Muladhara plus six spokes in Zvadistana plus ten spokes in Manipura plus twelve spokes in Anahata plus sixteen spokes in Vishuddha Chakra make up forty-eight spokes. And therefore, those who see these things, who understand these things, they understand Agnya Chakra is as much as the other five chakras put all together. That's why Agnya Chakra is a bit special already. Agnya Chakra is a universe, is the universe of the pure mind, which contains all the other five elements, and that's why it has 48 spokes to the left, 48 spokes to the right, like everything which was until here. The symbol is quite clear, and those 48 spokes are coordinated with 48 letters of the Sanskrit alphabet and all the rest of the things which you, uh, by now, uh, many of you know in the Tantric tradition, in the tradition about chakras. And that is why, in a certain way, <clears throat> we have a reality at the level of the first five chakras, and those are the objects, and we have a reality at the level of the mind, which is at the level of Agnya Chakra, and that is the mind contents. And Patanjali says, there is a difference between the mind and the object. The mind is not the object, the mind and the objects are not the mind. But on the other, in another way, if you zoom back the camera, you can simply say, what's the big deal? The objects are on the first five levels of the universe, and the mind is the sixth level of the universe. So aren't they the same ultimately? Isn't it all Prakriti? So the answer is yes and no. It's same, same, but different, as we could uh, humoristically say. Because, indeed, uh, there is a similarity and a difference as well. And here, to make clear what he wanted to say, Patanjali continues, and he says in the Sutra number 16, the object of perception, so he takes an object, the object of perception is not dependent on the chitta. Chitta is the mind, the mind at the level of Ajna Chakra. So the object of perception is not dependent on the chitta, for else, what would happen to the object when the medium of cognition is not there? Either the mind doesn't grasp the object because there is no transference, there is no knowledge, or simply the mind stops in a certain way, and then what would happen? It would mean that every time when you don't know an object, the object should disappear. And that cannot be true because we know it's not true. And therefore, here Patanjali criticizes this idealism, which says, well, if you don't know an object, it does not exist. But Patanjali says, but it does. The fact that one person or another doesn't know an object, doesn't have the knowledge, the perception, he says there is no medium of cognition, doesn't make the object disappear. Here again, Patanjali is on the verge of telling something very tantric, actually, because Patanjali says, well, it means that the objects have an existence of their own, which would make that the universe is real, since the objects do not depend on the mind of the perceiver, as some people may be inclined to believe. And that's why Patanjali is again on the fringe, on the edge of proclaiming that Shakti, the Prakriti, the manifestation, actually is real. And as a consequence of this, Patanjali goes even further and he says the mind needs, I'm commenting now the sutra number 17 already, he says the mind needs the reflection of the object for its cognition. Therefore, the mind needs to relate to the object for its cognition and that is quite obvious, which simply says Ajna Chakra, relates and controls with the five lower chakras and it needs to have the reflection of the object in it for its cognition. This is pure matrix, the movie, right? The mind needs to relate to the object to have its con cognition. If the object exists or not as such, the mind wouldn't be able to say because the mind receives signals through the sense organs. The five chakras are nothing else but symbolized or related to five 
sensory organs, the smell, the taste, the sight, the touch, and the hearing, and therefore the mind receives all the input of the five senses in Ajna Chakra, via Manas Chakra, a secondary center of energy which is placed right between the eyebrows, and therefore uh, the Ajna Chakra needs the reflection of the object to be able to perceive it. That's an elementary theory of knowledge. We don't need to insist. And finally, we have reached to the sutra number 18, where we'll stop tonight, uh, where Patanjali finally reaches a little bit of his purpose in commenting and commenting and commenting all the things which he wanted to comment. Patanjali says, Purusha, the master of Chitta, is changeless and therefore always knows the modification of the mind. Suddenly he tells us, besides the five elements, which are the world of objects, the universe, besides the mind, which is a sort of above the universe, controlling the universe, the unifier of the universe, there exists Purusha, which is the master of the Chitta. So basically he tells to us there is something above the Chitta, above the mind. And therefore he says Purusha, the master of the Chitta, is changeless. Therefore this does not modify. It has no reflection of the objects. The mind modifies because it has to reflect the objects. And the mind contains cause and effect and all those things the samskaras, the vasanas, the kleshas, and all the other things, and that's why the mind would modify, and the mind and the universe dance together. They are in a continuous interaction, in a mutual interaction, which makes them dance with each other. But now he comes and tells us for the first time in this chapter, he did it, he also told it to us in the first chapter, but in the first chapter we were beginners in Yoga Sutra and he, it was too early for him to go to the finale, to the grand finale, finale of this text. And that's why he took us through the whole yoga for three chapters and now in the fourth chapter he comes back and he says, Purusha, the master of the Chitta, is on the other hand changeless. So we are talking about something qualitatively different and therefore always knows the modifications of the mind. You are going to see that Patanjali makes a very fine analysis, actually, between uh, to demonstrate that Purusha is something else than the mind. For many people, this difference is the major pitfall, is the major catch, because we believe that our mind is our consciousness and the mind is not the consciousness that is a grievous error because both of them are very subtle and for most people their consciousness ends at the level of the mind and Patanjali tells to us no Purusha the master of Chitta on the other hand is changeless and it doesn't dance this dance objects reflected in the mind and therefore always knows the modifications of the mind. All the modifications of the mind. Remember, this is an allusion to the very first sutra. In the very first sutra, I'm sorry, the second sutra of Yoga Sutra, from chapter 1, Patanjali says, yoga is the arresting of the modifications of the mind, and speaks a lot about the modifications of the mind, which are the five states of mind, the five basic modifications of the mind. If you remember in that sutra, uh, they were given uh, the modifications of the basic modifications of the mind, such as right knowledge, wrong perception, and others. And therefore, here he says, Purusha only can observe the mind. As you are going to see, he goes very, very, very beautifully here because he basically tells us if, it, if there would not exist something beyond the mind, we would be in great trouble. The whole thing would be a bitter confusion. So here, indeed, Patanjali prepares the idea of transcending because this chapter, the number four, is called the Kaivalya, the isolation going beyond Prakriti to the world of pure spirit. 
and it is introduced in the sutra number 18 by saying Purusha, on the other hand, suddenly popped in, the master of Chita is changeless and therefore always knows the modifications of the mind. Uh, since time permits it, I will try to continue as much as possible tonight. That's why I will introduce at least one more sutra. And the sutra number 19 tells us that Chita is not self-illumined because it can be itself the subject of knowledge and perception. And with this, he tells us a lot. He says, the mind, since it can be known and perceived, such as you can look at your own mind and say, huh, look how agitated my mind is today. And therefore, you can actually observe your mind. The idea is, who observes your mind? In the moment when you can see your mind and you, don't, you are not identified with the mind, in that moment you actually are Atman. That would be an excellent moment to say, well, who am I? Who is this I that actually right now observes the mind, analyzes the mind? That could be a moment of lucidity, a moment of spiritual perception, a moment of breakthrough. And Patanjali says it very clearly. That chitta, the mind, this mind, is not self-illumined. This is a theory in the theory of perception in Vedanta and others, that to see something, you need to have it illumined. You need a source of light. You project like a spotlight, like the sun in the daytime. Right? You, need, you have the light, and because of the light, you can see. This is a tree... This is a house, this is a rock, this is a human being, this is a plant. But if, for example, everything would be absolutely dark, if you'd go in a black hole, nothing would be visible. If the light would be zero, like zero photons, you, it would be so dark like there is a proverb or a saying. It's so dark that you are sticking your, the fingers in your own eyes, up your own orbits you know it's like so dark it is that you might by mistake stick the fingers in your own orbits of the eyes because it's like it's so dark can't find anything you can't see anything it's completely completely dark and therefore uh, you need light to see the things and therefore the fact that we are perceiving i'm sitting here and perceiving you you are perceiving me we perceive reality we are in a yoga hall in an island we can see different objects we can perceive our existence we can perceive that time is passing so we perceive space we perceive time we perceive causality we perceive beings and so on this means that this universe is illuminated it is enlightened by some light source because if it wouldn't be enlightened, how would we perceive? And therefore, the ultimate source of light is not light physically, that's valid in the physical world, but it is the light of consciousness. The consciousness is compared to the sun. It is compared to a projector, to a spotlight. It gives light, and in that light you suddenly can see. You are in a totally dark environment, like in a dark room, and you see nothing and you are just fumbling blindly around and you see nothing, and everything seems to be one, undifferentiated, like the void, that's the very symbol of Shunya, the void, that things are undifferentiated, suddenly there is light. Let there be light. Why does creation start with light? Because if there would be no light, there would be no separation between things. Once there was light, the universe got separated in the upper things and the lower things. Heaven and earth. There would be no heaven and earth if there would be no light. Because light makes possible the separation visually speaking. But analogously speaking, not visually. You have to elevate your mind to a higher spiritual level, to a higher metaphysical level. If there would be no light of consciousness, what yoga and tantra calls prakasha, which is equivalent to Shiva, the pure consciousness, the subject, if there would not exist light, there would not exist reality, because it would be impossible to observe it. That is why the self is called self-illumined. 
a full self-effulgent. That's why it is compared to the sun. For example, you need the sun to see everything in this solar system. Thinking for a second, if there would be no stars at all, we would be dependent 100% on the light of the sun. If our solar system would be taken somewhere in the middle of nowhere, it would be pitch dark except the sun, which is the only source of light. And if the sun would go off, then it would be pitch dark absolutely. And therefore, the sun is self-effulgent. You need the sun to see the earth and the objects on the earth. You need the sun to see the moon, but you don't need anything to see the sun. The sun is shining through itself. It is self-effulgent. In the same way, the spirit, Shiva, the void, the pure Purusha, is called self-effulgent, self-illumined, because it doesn't need something else to see it. It sees itself. It is by itself the source of seeing, of perception. And that's why he says here in the Sutra 19, the Chitta is not self-illumined because it can be itself be subject of knowledge and perception. So the mind is like the moon. It is illuminated by something and that's why you can look at it. But the self, the Purusha, is like the sun. It is illumined through itself from inside. And therefore he shows even the mind is a reflection is not the origin of knowledge because you can you can have the mind as subject of knowledge or it would have been correct even to say as object of knowledge you can look at the mind you can know it you can observe it and that's why he refutes the idea that mind is consciousness mind is not consciousness it's an intermediary agent it is a reflection because uh, it, is, it can be known, and thus it is not self-illumined. <coughs> and, and he continues in the Sutra number 20 by saying, and there cannot be comprehension of both simultaneously. Both what? Both means subject and object. There cannot be comprehension through the mind of both simultaneously. The mind is only an object it cannot perceive the subject. That is why it is doomed to failure whenever you try to understand the nature of the spirit with the mind. I am looking with amusement and constantly I see movies, documentaries and so on in which people try constantly, constantly to demonstrate by all sorts of fallacious arguments the inexistence of God or of spirit. And it's all ludicrous, it's all ridiculous, because any argument is necessarily false. It, you cannot demonstrate either the existence or the non-existence of spirit by the mind, because the subject and the object are distinct, and therefore the mind is always an object to be known, and therefore it cannot simultaneously perceive the subject. And Patanjali says clearly, and there cannot be comprehension of both simultaneously. If you are in the subject, then it's pure subject. If you are in the object, then you cannot perceive the subject. And therefore, this is a very, very important, I could comment a lot, because the implications of this in understanding spiritual nature and spirituality are huge, but I don't need to go further because uh, the implication is quite clear. So Patanjali says, and there cannot be comprehension of both simultaneously, and therefore thus Patanjali has separated mind from Purusha, from consciousness. And he gives a brilliant argument in the Sutra number 21, which you can meditate upon by demonstrating brilliantly why mind is not the spirit, and why you should never expect to mix these two. We human beings have this desperate need to understand things. <clears throat> but when Judas tells to Jesus, I don't understand anymore your behavior, Jesus tells him, don't try to understand with the mind. Try to open your eyes and heart. Which means he, he recommends the spiritual perception. It's interesting that Jesus there says, 
try to open your eyes and heart because like what does it have to do with the eyes he doesn't mean the physical eyes he talks about the direct perception the zen masters had exactly the same point they call the spiritual enlightenment satori and satori means vision to see it's like you drink a cup of tea and suddenly you see and that seeing is like you see reality and you can't even label it you can't name it it's seeing but not thinking about reality it will be called the direct vision of reality and jesus says the same thing open your eyes and heart so jesus mentions the heart like this is a spiritual vision the heart doesn't need to think it's not the mind and he explicitly tells judas not with the mind can you understand me with the heart and eyes which are two synonyms two ways of expressing the ineffable in the when he says the eyes he is like a zen master and when he says the heart is he is of course the master of the heart he speaks about jivatman the void of the heart he speaks about bhakti yoga and the perception of the divine through the void of the heart but i don't want to divagate i simply wanted to say that the same perception the same thing that you need to have uh, perception observation of the mind and therefore that the mind cannot include the spirit and we human beings have this desperate need which will never be fulfilled that we want to understand the god we want to understand spirit and we never can that's why eventually you have to let go that's the ultimate letting go because if the mind cannot understand spirit it comes to the conclusion that you will never really be able to understand samadhi samadhi feels like the death of the mind eventually things are so incomprehensible that eventually you'll have to let go of understanding and say it's exactly like you throw yourself into the ocean of unknowing the christian mystics have called it the cloud of unknowing it's like you enter the void and there the mind disappears and it's like things make no sense and somehow everything is brilliant and connected and interconnected and related and yet you cannot explain it with a mind it's like everything works through some sort of miracle really we don't even really understand how it works because it makes no sense it's like somebody should come and like a german engineer should think that 2 plus 2 makes 4 and organize the whole thing and the whole thing is not organized and yet it works sometimes people say it's a little bit like in india everything is chaotic and yet things seem to work in a mysterious way they don't seem to work by the mind it's like half of those people are brain dead how does the whole thing keep working can be explained only by some sort of miracle of the heart a miracle of the divine consciousness that things still work when the mind is absent and that is of course because the mind is not everything while the mind is a formidable instrument and patanjali went so much into explaining the advantages of the mind nevertheless there is something beyond the mind the pure subject the purusha and that is why the mind cannot understand this purusha and that's the desperation because many people say at least make me understand remember there is a point where understanding stops and this creates an incredible fear because it's like i have to go into something which sounds like chaos and it's not chaos this is the mystery of faith people who have faith especially faith in god faith in the transcendent spirit it's like they believe in something which they will never be able to demonstrate they will never be able to and that's why it's so easy to mock faith or to misunderstand or this because it's like you are communicating with a black box you are communicating with something you don't know why this miracle really happened how things happen why they happened at the right time in the when exactly should things occur 
It's simply a great mystery. And that's what Patanjali said in the Sutra number 20, saying, and there cannot be comprehension of both simultaneously. The mind will not be able to fathom the depths of the spirit ever. That's why in yoga we can help you to go to the threshold. We can help you to go to the higher limit of the mind. But the spirit is always called grace. It's something which is of the nature of the infinite. You can go to the edge of the mind and not have the courage to jump in the void. Simply because you don't understand. Until now everything made sense. And now you are taking me to a point where things are suddenly not making sense. What is this? Chaos? No. The divine consciousness is not chaos. It is the ultimate order. It is the ultimate unanthropic aspect of the universe. But it, it takes this leap of faith that we reach to a point where the mind collapses and still something of great meaningfulness exists beyond this mind. I'm going to continue next time by telling you how Patanjali demonstrates beautifully, brilliantly genius this paradox.